So, we have a failure in proofreading on my part. Because that was supposed to be Acts 4, not Acts 2. So, you're going to get an extra Bible reading tonight. Um, Hopefully that doesn't disappoint you. So, uh, I'm actually going to ask you to stand. And before we turn to Nehemiah, I'm going to read from Acts 4, which I was turned to, and then I turned away from it. I'm going to read uh, just Acts 4, verses 32 through 37. Uh, The Gospel writer Luke records for us in Acts, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him (coughs) and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now we can turn back to uh, Nehemiah 5, which is on page 401 of those Blue Pew Bibles. We're going to continue our walk through the book of Nehemiah that we've been calling Rebuilding After a Hot Mess, uh, Seeking the Welfare of God's People. So last time we got together, uh, we saw Nehemiah dealing with opposition from the outside, uh, and Pastor Mike uh, had us look at what was going on with Sanballat and uh, Tobiah and the trouble they were bringing, uh, and Nehemiah's response But now that that's sort of dealt with, uh, it turns out there's not only opposition from the outside, there are significant problems coming from within the people of God that need to be dealt with and sins that need to be repented of. And I'm going to read the entire chapter of Nehemiah 5, and then we will look at what is going on in this community And with Nehemiah. So, Nehemiah 5, beginning in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards." Well, I, this is Nehemiah, writing in the first person, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. 
And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending the money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and empty. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised Yahweh. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration forty shekels of silver, Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on uh, this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, and besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, What was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. All that I've read to you from both the Old and New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, show us your grace in how you work in the community of your people and what you call your people to be like and what sort of leaders you would have your people to look for. And then make us into a godly people and give us godly leaders that will show us Jesus and help us walk in your righteous ways for the sake of your name. Amen. You may be seated. So, let's just look at what's going on here. In verses 3 and 4, the the people are calling out, right? There's a great outcry, and they're saying, Nehemiah, the king's taxes are super high. We've been having to borrow money. There's this famine that's come upon us, and it's made it where in order to have the basic necessities... We're having to mortgage out our fields, our vineyards, our houses, uh, sell our own daughters into slavery. And this is compounded because even when they're going to their own fellow Jews, 
They're lending money and charging exorbitant amounts of interest that keep these needy people trapped in poverty in such a way that it is destroying the reformed community. I mean, we've read about, about everyone coming back from Persia and Nehemiah coming here, and now it's all falling apart. Now, ordinarily, money lending, like we see here, uh, as much, and the slavery, selling children into slavery, as much as it might rub us the wrong way, was a fairly normal way to pay off some debts. But even this was not being done in the normal, just way. Uh, normally, you know, there'd be an agreement. You do this amount of work uh, for this long, and it will either your debt will be paid off, or the seventh year will come around, the year of Jubilee, and all your debts will be forgiven. Uh, and as far as the children being sold into slavery goes, there are some hints in the Hebrew that uh, this there was some significant abuse, particularly of the girls, and probably of a sexual nature going on, uh, which was all prohibited by the law of God. So there is wickedness. Everything is collapsing back in to the very same wickedness that caused God to send them into exile in the first place. What's more, when they go to take out these loans, the people taking the loans are essentially accepting a pledge. That is, they're taking the basics needed for them to then actually go do the work to pay off the debt so they can't pay it off anyway. Am I painting a bleak picture here? Because it's a pretty bleak picture. These are the practices that caused the collapse of their society to begin with because they are essentially reenacting the very curses that they're reenacting the curses upon themselves that God told them he would bring upon them for acting this way. And they're doing this because of financial interest and greed. The people of God have been utterly swayed by the values of the culture they've been in exile with. So while they're free again in some political sense, they are utterly in bondage to the worldly ways of the Persians and Babylonians from whom they have been freed, and it is wreaking havoc on them. And that's the church. We are in an ever-present battle against the world outside of us and following God's ways inside the church in all manner of ways. This is par for the course when it comes to God's people. We try to follow the Lord. He provides us freedom and draws us near, and we inculcate the values of the world and begin to live again according to the world's values. And then God provides a prophet uh, and confronts us to draw us to repentance. Now, not always necessarily a capital P prophet in the Old Testament sense, although uh, that certainly happened in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's a pastor, sometimes it's a friend, sometimes it's God's word at the right place in the right time. And in this case, it was an ordinary governor. The thing about Nehemiah is he wasn't a, a prophet exactly. 
He was a governor. Uh, He was a politician of sorts, not the way we think about it. And verse 6 tells us that when he heard about all these things going on, he got angry. And he knew he needed to go in and fix this. And it says he took counsel with himself. It's probably a, a way to say that he had to go and pray about this and think about it until he wasn't just overcome by anger. Because uh, I'll give you a little hint. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But then he returns to call the people to repentance. And all of that setup leads us to the meat of what uh, I think is in this passage tonight. Because Nehemiah's solution and leadership give us instruction and example of fearing God and living in just and generous ways. And what Nehemiah proceeds to do gives us a picture of two things. So now that I've basically made a point, here's our two points. First, we get a picture in this passage of what the community of God's people is supposed to look like. And second, Nehemiah gives us a picture of what the leaders of God's people are supposed to be like, and therefore what all of us are are to aspire to be like. So, a picture of God's community and a picture of God's leaders. First, in confronting the problems of Jerusalem here, Nehemiah winds up painting a picture of what the community of God's people ought to look like. And in this passage, I think there's three characteristics in particular that stick out about what God's community is supposed to be characterized by. God's community is supposed to be characterized by justice, repentance, and generosity. Justice, repentance, and generosity. First, God's community is to be characterized by justice within and without their community. Uh, Commentator Dean Ulrich says, for members of a kingdom of priests, that's us, people must come before prophet. People must come before prophet. Fairness, compassion, and self-denial should be the bottom line in a redeemed community. And Ulrich goes on to point out in verse 9 that Nehemiah makes a missional application. It doesn't just stay within the church. When those who claim to fear God mistreat each other, outsiders get the wrong message that redeemed people in covenant with Yahweh are no different from anyone else. If God's people lack compassion, and if making money by any means takes precedence over love for neighbor, then God's people have nothing to offer outsiders who already live under the other golden rule. You know what the other golden rule is, don't you? Whoever has the gold makes the rules. So essentially, uh, what Mr. Ulrich is saying about Nehemiah is, uh, what we have here is the opposite of what Jesus taught us, right? Because Jesus said that the world will know we are his followers by how we love one another. And whenever we fail to love one another, 
we hurt our witness to the world. Now, again, this is dealing with what's happening within the people of God, saying don't take advantage of one another. But those who come in, that is meant to draw people into the community of God's people so that they come in and discover a people concerned with fairness and compassion and justice and service. And that then leads us back out into the community with those same concerns. And so while this example isn't exactly something happening within a church, there is a beautiful story that uh, the elders and deacons read about in a book called Becoming Whole uh, last year. Spring Creek Church in Garland, Texas, uh, basically put to death the payday loan industry in Garland. See, there were a number of people coming to their church who were in extreme poverty, and they were going to all of these payday loan places just to make ends meet. Now, now should they have done something else where there other wiser things to do? That's irrelevant. That's what they did. And so the church ministered to them where they were. And what the church did is they started their own loan company. Uh, and they said to their church members at first, any of you that have been going to these places, come to us. We're going to make you a loan, but we're not going to put you spiraling into worse and worse financial straits. They charged reasonable or no interest. And then they began to invite in the rest of the town who were also falling prey to these payday loan businesses. But they didn't just make loans. They provided financial counseling. They didn't charge exorbitant interest, and they shared the gospel. And as the story goes, the church was able to help all these people out of ever, out of an ever increasing amount, uh, mountain of debt, and eventually put the payday loan business in Garland out of business. And several other churches around the U.S. have since taken up a similar model, pushing back against the evil and wickedness in that industry. And all of this because of their Christian concern for proper fairness and compassion on people based based on the principles of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now, I'm not saying that's what heritage needs to go do, okay? I'm just trying to give you an example of the way this can play out. And let that inspire us to do whatever it is we are called to do. Because I do think that's a pretty inspiring example of what getting these values of justice into our hearts leads us to look like, both within and without the church. And if you realize you're not in line with God's heart and God's law, which happens on a regular basis, (laughs) well... The second characteristic of God's people is the characteristic of repentance. That is, when we realize we're messing up, we feel godly sorrow for not following the Lord. And we turn to him asking for forgiveness. And we turn to him with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. And often... When it is possible and when we are able, we even go so far as to make right that which we made wrong. This is a principle called restitution. And again, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, restitution is called a duty. 
when you repent. There were certain crimes where it was necessary to make restitution such that if you stole something, you had to pay back the value of what you stole plus the value again. And by the time we get to the New Testament, we often see, not out of obligation to do good and get saved, but out of abundant thankfulness for being saved, extravagant restitution, such as we read about from Zacchaeus in Luke 19. When Jesus was passing through town, Zacchaeus, uh, who was a chief tax collector and rich, wanted to go see Jesus. But on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was short, basically. So he runs and he climbs a tree, uh, a sycamore tree. <laughs> I, I just think of what's the, the little song. Uh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up the sycamore tree. I didn't grow up in the church. Y'all know that song. I don't. Anyway, right, so Jesus comes to the place, and being Jesus, he walks straight up to the tree and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurries down and receives Jesus with joy. He knows who Jesus is. He knows what's come to him. And so all the other people start grumbling, Jesus has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Yes, he has. And Zacchaeus stood before Jesus and said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods, the half of all my stuff, I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, forget Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I'm going to restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Right? It is a it is a hallmark of the community of God's people that we are repentant people because we know that we are sinners that have been saved. And then a natural outworking of that very care and salvation we receive is the third characteristic of the community of God, which is care, and generosity. Now, Nehemiah himself is a prime example of generosity in how uh, he governs the people, which is actually what we're going to look at in the next point. But he goes to these people and he instructs them. He instructs the entire community into living into an ethic of generosity and particularly taking care of one another simply obeying what God already told them to do, again, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. By the way, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we just all need to read them more. They're actually really oddly practical books. <laughs> uh, right? So Nehemiah is looking at the plight of the impoverished, and he realizes that the situation now requires giving, not lending. Right, So he actually ups the ante. He says, you know what? I know this lending thing is allowed in Deuteronomy, but listen, we need to give because sometimes helping others by lending isn't enough. We just need to give unselfishly. Again, as Deuteronomy 15 lays out for us, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that Yahweh your God is giving you, You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, 
but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, well, the seventh year, the year of release is near. In other words, you don't want them to get forgiven of their debt. You want to get what they owe you back. If you do that, that's sin on your part. Sin on our part. The seventh year, the year of release is near and you, and your eye looks grudgingly on your poor brother and so you give him nothing. And he cries to Yahweh against you, and you would be guilty of sin. No, you should give to him freely. And your heart should not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, Yahweh your God will bless you in all your work in the, and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. And Jesus himself said, the poor will always be with you. Paul wrote, the Lord loves a a cheerful giver. So back to Deuteronomy. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Now, an interesting outworking of this is this is why it is very important for us as the Christian church to do more than show up to church on Sunday. We need to be deeply and richly involved in one another's lives, such that we can see and know about the needs of the people in the church. And we have a duty to meet and help one another's needs. And just lest anyone think I'm trying to make some indictment against heritage, my own family has been a recipient of heritage's generosity. So take that as an encouragement, not an indictment, but an encouragement that we do need to continue and possibly ever grow in, okay? Um, we need to be up in each other's business so we can care for one another because that's what God's community is meant to be. And where COVID has separated us and torn us apart and diminished our relationships, we need to rebuild after that hot mess, right? We need to very intentionally engage one another in order to strengthen our relationships with one another, in order to know what's going on with one another. And yes, we do need to be prepared to enter into both financial and temporal costs of walking with one another, especially those who are struggling. So, having that picture of the community of God's people, Nehemiah then in his own example, which I've already referred to, gives us a picture of the leader, of what the leaders of God's people are supposed to look like. And by the way, if, if you've never picked up this principle, when you go and read 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 about elders and deacons, whether you're a man or a woman, okay, those uh, traits, those character traits, or something we're to all aspire to. So when I say this is what the leaders of God's people are supposed to aspire to, I'm really saying it's what we're all supposed to aspire to, okay? And I just want you to know, if you've either felt like a failure because of what I've said thus far in this sermon, um, just know, okay, I, maybe I can't speak for Pastor Mike and the other elders, I felt like a real failure as I worked on this sermon, <laughs> So um, this was not fun. So I'm, I'm going to climb down in the pit with you, okay? 
but I do want to clarify. What I am saying in all of this is not, hear all these instructions, buck up and be better. No, I'm saying we need to know God. And this is who we need to aspire to become because of who our God is. Uh, in, in both verse 9 and verse 15, right? Nehemiah roots everything he tells them to do and everything he himself does in the fear of God. That means that the love of God, the fear of, fear of God and love of God go hand in hand in biblical thinking, right? We are to love God, know our God, fear God, and therefore live out this way, seeking justice because the God who loves us is a God of justice, seeking to be generous because the God who saved us is a generous God, seeking to repent, not just so we can be okay with God, but because we know we're forgiven and it delights our God who has shown us compassion and generosity through his son, Jesus Christ. And it is in Jesus that, that we then begin to find joy as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ, becoming like Nehemiah, becoming like the community is supposed to be. Now, when it comes to Nehemiah, there are several traits that come out here in this text, especially in verses 14 through 19. But I just want to highlight one in particular. And, and that is Nehemiah's self-sacrifice. A question all those in leadership must ask, a question I must ask, is what sacrifices do I need to make for the people I'm leading, even if I have a right what I'm sacrificing. Nehemiah realized that the taxes and the demands of the work on the wall were already heavy on the people. He says it several times in the passage. Therefore, he not only sacrificed the taxes he was entitled to, because the taxes themselves were not unjust, but he actually underwrote all the government expenses from his own personal fortune. Now, admittedly, this means that Nehemiah was in a set of circumstances where he had a personal fortune to do that from. Okay, so context matters. Most of us probably couldn't do that. But if you can, you might have an obligation to. I said might. Right? But Nehemiah reminds us of 1 John 3, 16 through 18, which points to the greater Nehemiah, Jesus. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Also see James 3. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And Nehemiah is indeed a worthy example of deed and truth for Christian leaders today, because leadership means going further than those one is leading. Also, because again, 
This plays into our witness to the watching world. Right? For Nehemiah, he was not only having in Jews, having in the poor, having in the nobles, having in the servants, having in the other officials, but it says he was uh, having at his own expense those from the nations that were around us. Right? Gentiles were beneficiaries of his generosity. And so while his generosity, as it should, began in the household of God, much like with Spring Creek, it soon overflowed into the community around them. Or maybe said a different way, it flowed to draw more into the household of God. That's essentially what Paul talks about when he describes his own Nehemiah experience all through 1 Corinthians 9. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we, speaking of the apostles, not have the right to eat and drink? Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? Uh, The law of Moses says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. This was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope, right? So basically he's talking about how he as an apostle and a preacher ought to get paid. But he also says this, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We didn't demand to get paid, right? If you know Paul's story, he was a tent maker. He was called to a ministry that involved him not getting paid for what he did. And he did it because he says we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? This is about bringing people into the household of God. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial alterings? It's all the tithe stuff Pastor Mike was talking about uh, in Sunday school this morning. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I have a reward, but it's not of my own will. Right, so he just goes on talking about the fact that he was called to self-sacrifice for God's people. And Nehemiah said he was motivated to self-sacrifice because of the fear of God. And he is saying that the leaders of God's people, the, the sort of leaders we want to be looking for, are people of self-sacrifice such that Nehemiah could pray, Remember me for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. He's not saying, Remember me, O my God, so that you'll save me. He's not even saying, Give me bonus points. He's saying, Lord, have I been faithful? I'm pretty sure I have. And so Paul could say, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the greater leader, the greater Nehemiah, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become 
rich. That's what motivates our self-sacrifice. Now I'm not saying our as in leaders. Our as in all of us becoming leaders together. We can make those self-sacrifices because of what Jesus, the greater Nehemiah, has done for us. Because he is the one we must all look to, to be our leader. In fact, if Jesus isn't our leader, then when we see our own failings as a community and leaders, we are without hope and we become oppressed. But God has been gracious to provide deliverance for his people so that seeing these pictures, these pictures of community, and these pictures of leadership, we can have hope that by his power we can become exactly that. Right? Nehemiah knew he could repent because he was forgiven. And we know we can move towards this because our Savior has generously bought us at a price, paying all of our debts. And that gives us hope that we can grow into leaders and community like this. And so Nehemiah becomes very, very good news. Let's pray. Lord, continue to grow us and give your church, pastors, elders, deacons, leaders, full of integrity and courage and humility, knowledge of their sins and knowledge of your salvation, that we may all move forward in self-sacrifice to love one another so that the watching world may know that we are your disciples. May that ever enlarge your household for the glory of your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.